coming up on today's show, 15-Minute Cities. Edmonton's talking about them. Andrew Knack, a city councillor in that city, will join us. President of the Rural Municipalities of Alberta and the Reeve of Pinoca County will join us to discuss his opposition to the province's plan to give tax credits to oil companies to clean up their own gas wells. And a lot of talk about increasing the amount of education spaces for healthcare workers in our province. We're talking about 15-minute cities. Now, if you've ever shopped for a house, do this right now. Go on the internet and look up a real estate ad. Anyone, any real estate ad. And I am 99% sure that that ad will say somewhere on it, close to schools, close to transit, close to shopping, close to things is a selling feature. Whenever property is sold. And it always, always has been. It's why shopping centers were created. Everything in one space. I mean, you know, that's why we had schools in every neighborhood, all these sorts of things. The concept of a 15-minute city is not new. The name is, okay? It it came about in 2016 when this tag of 15-minute cities was applied. Um, He won awards, the guy who came up with it. Um, And basically what it is, is a plan that city planners should follow to try and develop cities so that residents are within 15 minutes of the things that we all use. Things like shopping, as I said, and schools and doctors and workplaces. Won an international award for this concept. But in reality, it's been around for a long time. That's sort of the way that we've always built cities and neighborhoods and communities is trying to have all the services nearby, right? But this has now taken a turn. It's been weaponized online. And there is a very passionate narrative. Jordan says it's a conspiracy theory. I would agree. I don't see this. That, um, what we're talking about here is just the latest step in the World Economic Forum, the New World Order, Klaus Schwab, the UN, the list goes on. You know the, you know all the players, that this is their latest step to imprison you, right? You're going to be, this isn't just a district that you live in. This is the district you are confined to. And if you leave, you will be punished for you. It's, it's, it's some real science fiction hunger games kind of stuff. Now, Edmonton, is one of the many cities that's talked about incorporating this idea into their planning. And some members of city council have valiantly tried to explain the reality behind this, including Andrew Knack, who joins us now. Councillor Knack, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, it's, it's, like I said earlier, I think this is, this is the latest front in, in the culture war, right? I mean, this is, this is, we've moved past vaccines, we've moved past, I mean, the list goes on. Uh, and it seems like this is the one that a lot of people are focused on now, right? Yeah, and, and I think what I have found over the last couple of days is I've been getting calls and you know re- people reaching out is is that some folks are very much trying to make this the next thing. They felt that uh, through COVID there were actions taken by the government, and this is the next step in that process. Okay, so let's from your take, from what the city of Edmonton is talking about, what do you mean when you talk about fifteen-minute cities, Councillor? It's exactly as you described it at the top. I mean, it's just another term for something like walkable communities or any type of thing like that. The the idea is, do you have access to the services and amenities you want and need within a 15-minute walk, bus, or bike ride? Again, not a new planning concept. This has been around for decades and decades. You think back to the you know, city of Edmonton back in the 1950s when you used to have that neighborhood grocery store, that neighborhood bakery, that neighborhood pharmacy. Um, And as the years went on and as zoning rules were adjusted and as new transportation tech came in, uh, that 
that evolved and we actually lost a lot of our mature neighborhoods hollowed out and a lot of our newer communities aren't keeping up with those infrastructure demands. And so it's about trying to make sure we're a bit more attentive to that, allowing, making sure we have zoning in place that allows those choices to exist, not to force them on anyone, but just so that those choices can be made. And they can't as uh, that easily right now in the city of Edmonton. What components go into it? Okay, your house is, your house is there. What are the services or whatever that need to be within that 15-minute range? What's on the radar there? You listed a bunch of them at the top there, and you're right. It's it's schools, it's grocery stores, it's doctor's offices, dentists, banks, you know, mechanics, uh, you know, parks, all of those th- recreation centers, libraries, those types of services and amenities that that you might usually use, you know, every couple of days or every week, uh, making sure they're more readily accessible. I, I think about the neighborhood I live in. I live right by Metal Arc Mall, which has I literally have within a 15-minute walk of my home, my doctor, my dentist, my mechanic, three grocery stores, multiple schools, multiple parks, uh, and and far more than even what I've just listed. Uh, and so it's about making sure everyone has that opportunity. And and I know it leads into this fear about, well, now, you know, am I going to be locked in my district? Well, no, first, that's never been proposed. And to, you know, and I think the other thing is like, I still like to get in my car and go to Costco. You know, I like to buy in bulk. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're not going to develop a system and, and there is no system being proposed that would result in people not being able to choose how they want to live and where they want to live. So, and that's where the concern comes in because I don't think anybody has a problem with a well-planned neighborhood that has a lot of services close, but it's somehow been turned into, that's not what this is. You will be confined. Look what's happening in Oxford. If you venture out in your zone, they're taking a picture of your license plate and you're being penalized, which isn't what's happening. Um, But in terms of, (laughs) is there any thought, has there been any discussion, is there any planning on terms of toll roads, fees, charges, penalties for leaving your quote-unquote district? No. And it's that simple. Like, I, I don't want to... It's, it's, yeah, it no, is that fair simple. Enough. No, that's not been considered, and that's not on the table. Why, I, I guess, and you talk about it, you live in Meadowlark, I live in Gold Bar, neighborhoods of similar vintage in the city of Edmonton, and I'm the same as you. Everything that I want is pretty much within 15 minutes. Like, everything is there, but like you, I do venture farther afield because I want to go to the Italian Center on the weekend, or whatever the case may be. Um, so, why, why do we need this? Why do we need to come in with some sort of a framework that says 15-minute cities when we're already doing it, Councillor? Well, I think that the challenge is that a lot of neighborhoods don't allow those wide variety of choices that some neighborhoods did. So, I mean, if you think about zoning rules in North America or land use bylaws, which normally is an incredibly boring topic that nobody pays attention to, but it's in a way I'm sort of glad people are talking about it now. (laughs) But but land use bylaws are about, you know, on this lot, can you build a single family home or a row housing development or an 18 story apartment building or a commercial property or you name it. And oftentimes our zoning bylaws and our land use bylaws were designed in ways that were very separate. So this is, you know, this area is the spot where you have single family homes. This entirely separate area is where you have access to commercial amenities. And so while some neighborhoods were built under an old way of thinking, uh, which is having things closer to you, other neighborhoods as land use bylaws evolved actually didn't allow those, that opportunity to exist. So you couldn't even have the potential of a neighborhood grocery store 
contained within a residential area because the residential area was just for housing, nothing else. And that's part of what we need to be a little more attentive to on our land use bylaws. So interestingly enough, this is actually about providing greater freedom and greater choice because our land use bylaw has been far more restrictive and prevented people from even having that chance to choose. And that's what we need to work on right now. Okay. Um, and that's sort of the extent of what a municipality can do anyway, right? You can deal with zoning, you can deal with land use bylaws, um, but, but that's really about it. When it comes to a 15-minute city, you can't start getting into enforcement issues anyway. So it, it, the scope of what you're trying to do is, I mean, you can't enforce a 15-minute city. That can't be something right. that the City of Edmonton forces a developer to even try. That's right. And, and I think you just nailed one last important point. We can have the zoning set, but ultimately it's the free market that decides where a grocery store sets up, where a yoga studio sets up, where daycare gets set up. So we can make sure that that is an opportunity, but ultimately the free market has to come in and say, we're going to fill what we believe to be a gap in this area. Right. So to your point, that's why we really can't enforce that because our role is just, is this allowed to be a choice? That's what we're talking about. Uh, I wanted to ask you about your experience in the, I don't know, 48, 72 hours since you posted your video. I am uh, overwhelmed by the number of responses you received and the the distance from which they came. I mean, they're from all over the world. You you kicked the hornet's nest. How's it been going for you? You know, I, I, honestly, I'm, I'm really glad that, as you know, in, a, in an odd way, I am glad that people are starting to pay attention to land use because it's something that over my time on council has been incredibly important and very few people get engaged about. Uh, certainly some of the engagement has been less than constructive from yeah. some of the folks that have reached out. But honestly, I, I've been posting and we're trying to reply to a bunch of different comments. And some of them have been actually, you know, meaningful. It started off maybe a little bit in the, in the realm of angry. And folks have maybe come to recognize that this isn't as uh, this isn't nefarious like they think it is, and and so I've actually been really happy to have these conversations. Um, I've had some long phone calls over the last couple of days, some thirty and forty five minute phone calls with people, and and I, I I am reminded of this is that there are and you touched on at the beginning here, this is honestly a very small group of people. They can be very loud, mm-hmm. but you know I was out door knocking the last two Fridays, and you know how many times it came up zero because. Right. The, most people don't care and they just want things close by. But for this small group of people, they have a, a genuine fear of government. And you can sort of, and at a times I want to blow it off as uh, just a conspiracy theory. Like, why give these people any attention? At the same time, if, if somebody feels legitimate fear, you know, is it incumbent upon someone like myself in a role where I'm trying to serve everyone to attempt to at least make sure that they feel heard and, and understood and maybe try to break down that fear and come to a common place of understanding. And I think about a call I had just a day and a half ago from someone where we spent half an hour on the phone and at the end she said, well, you know, I like the idea of, you know, of a walkable community and, and having, you know, a doctor close by, but I just really don't like the, the, this name 15 minute city and what it, what, what she believes it stands for. And, this tie back to the World Economic Forum. And I actually found that even though we maybe ended the conversation still not seeing eye to eye, we, I think we actually agreed far more than not. She, she was afraid of some 
something bigger mm-hmm. and you know really bring it down to a bit of a local level and a, a different understanding. Uh, what's the timeline on this? I mean, is this just something that's being proposed, talked about, and how does it even how is it implemented? Is it just sort of a guiding principle? I mean, how does it go forward from here? Well, so it was actually back in December 2020, after a few years of engagement, that the city of Edmonton approved our city plan. It's a it's essentially another name for a municipal development plan that municipalities have to do uh, every decade or so. And uh, so in that plan already talked about that notion of of 15 minute city, 15 minute communities and how we want to work on that. But in terms of actually implementing it, if you will, or, or moving that idea forward, the main work is underway now. So we've been through what's called our zoning bylaw renewal. We are completely rebuilding our zoning bylaw from the ground up. And again, back to that point of allowing greater flexibility and greater choice to exist. And so that work has been underway for a couple of years. We are nearing the end. There's still a couple more months of work before later this year there would be a public hearing on all those land use changes, and people can come and speak to that. And I think that's going to be a good way to help Mm -hmm. folks um, see it differently because they can read through. I mean, the draft changes are already up. It's 336 pages. You can read it and see what is actually being talked about. And it has nothing to do with restriction of movement. It has everything to do with different land use choices. So folks can get engaged. They don't take my word for it. They can get involved. (laughs) Read the document. Councillor, thanks so much for your time. Unfortunately, I'm out of time, but I do appreciate you being here. (laughs) Thank you. Take care. We're going to get into this R-STAR program. You've probably heard of that. It's the proposed plan to incentivize oil and gas companies to clean up well sites in the province of Alberta. It is not going over well in a lot of different areas. The opposition just continues to mount to this R-Star program. It was announced last week uh, the province, under this plan, which is proposed, hasn't happened yet, they would grant uh, $100 million in tax credits to oil companies to clean up their old well sites. So, basically, they'd get a break on the royalties they have to pay going forward, um, in term in the form of a tax credit uh, based on cleaning up of their well sites cleaning up their well sites is their legal obligation they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart it's part of the cost of doing business but the it's not happening so the government wants to spend money to incentivize them to do what they're legally required to do that's where the issue comes in and all kinds of people are pushing back against the plan including the fact that the premier is involved in this because before she was premier, uh, Daniel Smith lobbied the Kenny government to implement this very program on behalf of industry. So that raises all kind of conflict alarms. Scotiabank has said the plan goes against the very core principle of capitalism that sees private companies take responsibility for the liabilities they willingly accept. Even the province's current Minister of the Environment found herself in a bit of a tight spot. Uh, Sonia Savage was energy minister, or previously, and was vocally opposed to the R-Star program. Said it didn't make sense, she didn't like it, violated the province's polluter pay system. Um, Now, she is the Minister of Environment, and she was asked about it, and she sort of punted. She said, yes, I was opposed to it under its previous form, but you would have to speak with the current energy minister about what it looks like now. So she's, uh, I don't know if she's had a change of heart, but she's certainly not talking about it uh, in light of the new 
plan. So lots of questions, lots of concerns about R-Star, including among Alberta's rural municipalities. They don't like this plan either. So we're going to find out what their concerns are. We're going to chat with Paul McLaughlin now, who is president of the rural municipalities of Alberta, also the Reeve of Pinoca County. Paul, thanks for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me today. So in an interview last week, I thought it was a, a great quote. You described this program as, this is exactly how a fox would design a hen house. So tell us what your concerns are with R-Star. Well, R-Star has been churning out there uh, in, in the space for a while. It, and, and, you know, it really is, is, is driven by uh, sort of industry values, industry understanding. And so, really, we're pushing back. It's funny because a lot of people say, stay in your lane, you know, is this in your yeah. lane? Well, I, I represent the folks that are stewards of the land. Um, every single rural Albertan is one degree away from the oil and gas industry. Uh, when we look at this program, this is exactly how Fox would design a handhouse. <laughs> so, um, like you say, you, you are representing Alberta municipalities. So when we're talking about staying in your lane, what are you hearing from municipalities? What What are they bringing to you? What are your concerns? I, I was in front of uh, about uh, 100 of my folks that I represent on Friday, and, and uh, they support the oil and gas. It's, we have uh, oil in our veins. Uh, and these folks said, uh, we support the oil and gas industry. We're not going to pay for their cleanup, and we don't want to pay for their taxes either. And they're pretty clear about that's what their thoughts are. Um, is that the primary concern is the fact, you know what, hey, it's the oil company's responsibility. Why are we stepping in to pay? Is that as simple as it gets? It's as simple as it gets, using public money. And, and I know in quotations it's incentivized, but, you know, levers are available. And when, when oil and gas prices get as high as they are and free cash flows where it's at, mm-hmm. um, I think there's some opportunities there with the AR to increase the levers, to increase the liability cleanup. Um, those exist. Uh, they've done a good job up till now. They should just hammer it up when the price goes up. Um, in terms of communication with the province, I don't know how much of that goes on with your organization outside of formal meetings. Has there been communication uh, with the ministry or with the premier about your concerns? Well, you know, they've, they've done they've done a bit of a intro meeting, more of a comms piece than an actual what should this system look like. Um, it, it was it's evident in what we've seen so far that this pilot's going to proceed. Uh, we made it pretty clear that we've got other issues, and and we've had tax incentives that have come off of rural municipal taxation. So the well drilling tax has been incentivized to industry; those were taxes due to municipalities. Uh, we also have an issue tied to a tax holiday that the that's a municipal tax. And then I still have the conversation around the unpaid taxes that in the next two weeks you're going to hear about. Oh, okay. All right. We'll look forward to that. Uh, you made a point in the interview that I read last week um, saying, you know what, we're talking about tax credits on royalties. Um, those royalties are paid to Albertans. You would like to see this put to a referendum. You think that may be the easiest way to solve this? Well, I think we need to, because if you think about it, we are actually at the cycle, royalty cycle, that we're actually getting, starting to get full royalties. There's been a bit of a royalty holiday to get some of these oil sands projects hammered up uh, and, and moving forward. So uh, really, we're at peak royalty, and all of a sudden, we're, we're going to start giving them back. I think this is the time that we need to build our base, uh, build our infrastructure, and, and take care of business while royalties are at the highest they've been, actually, in a generation. Are you at all concerned that the premier's involved here? As I mentioned earlier, that's something a lot of people are pointing out as crossing uh, lines for them and putting up red flags. The fact that she lobbied um, the Kenny government on behalf of industry for the very plan that she implemented, you know, as part of her mandate letter to the energy ministry. Well, and, and you know, I'm a full disclosure kind of guy. So two years ago, um, in in that role, who uh, now Premier Smith actually lobbied my organization. After 90 minutes of conversation, I wasn't convinced either back then. Okay. All right. So what about now? I mean, is, is that a problem that she's bringing it in? Is that, is that part of the issue or is it just the plan itself, regardless of who brings it forward? 
Well, I always remain curious, and I think that there's an opportunity. What I like is we're talking about oil oil field liabilities, and I think we, we need to have this conversation. Is it $90 billion of liabilities? Is it $250 billion of liabilities? What are the high-risk sites and what are the low-risk sites? I think that this becomes part of a public dialogue, and we understand what the goals of the AER are, and I think that's a really important piece to have right now. So I'm glad we're having this conversation. Would I say R-STAR is the, the way to do it? I think it's changed to liability management investment program. Uh, the Voldemort name, it's no called our star it's still our star by design mm. and and i think we should have this discussion i think all albertans should understand what exactly the environmental liabilities that we have uh, relative to cash flow with oil and gas the liabilities are one part of it but and smith rightfully says you know what we've had this issue for a long time there's been different approaches to try and solve it it hasn't worked we still have these i'm sure you hear from the landowners at a part of your association about these unremediated well sites and all the rest and the concerns they have about that so um it's not happening. So what do we do? Well, what we do is the AER starts to pull up the levers. Any site that's over 40 years old that's not cleaned up, the high-risk sites should be addressed. Uh, I'm an environmental consultant. I've been out in the field in the middle of the boreal forest and came across a well site that was 50 years old and it looked like they were there the day before. Um, and so these exist on the land. Um, there's, we have the data. All we need to do is actually have the AR say, you know what, your high-risk sites need to be done in the next year. The problem with Alberta is we actually don't have a timeline for abandoned well site cleanup. Um, that's a real problem. We've got now we've got uh, an increase in liability reduction, but we still don't have a timeline. You can spend 20 years and just pay surface leases and not clean something up. But you say, you know, you have to clean it up. Well, they know they have to clean it up. They've always known they had to clean it up and they haven't done it. So rather than incentivize, would you punish? Would you penalize? I would literally look at the price of oil and gas and I'd say your liability is going to increase when it's above $70 a barrel. Uh, you should increase your liability reduction. Hey, listen, companies aren't evil, but if companies only have to clean up, use 7% of their cash flow to actually clean up liabilities, the rest are going to go to shareholders and share buybacks. So you need to make sure that there's a regulatory lever in place to increase the liability reduction when the price point is high. And you know what? The, the best part of the discussion is, is that when price point is low, you should get some forgiveness on, on your liability and you should actually start using that cash flow to keep your business alive too. Make sure that it's a floating line and, and make sure that it makes sense based on the commodity cycles. Excellent. Okay. Uh, Paul, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate uh, your thoughts this morning. Thanks for having me. Have an amazing day. You too. That's Paul McLaughlin. He is president of the Rural Municipalities of Alberta and the Reeve of Pinoca County. And as I said, uh, certainly not alone in his opposition to the provincial plan to provide up to $100 million in tax credits to oil and gas companies to clean up oil and gas sites that is their legal responsibility to clean up. Um, and uh, as I said, uh, Scotiabank, uh, a number of opposition, even people within government, right? I mean, or formerly in government. I think it was Drew Barnes, who used to be a UCP MLA, came out and said, this is absolutely ridiculous. We shouldn't be paying these companies to, you know, meet their own legal obligations. It's their legal obligation if they don't do it, penalize them. That's the other side of the argument, right? Rather than pay them to do what they're responsible to do, we need to penalize them if they don't do it. And, you know, like Paul pointed out, when you're talking about where they are, um, in terms of revenue and, and profits and everything right now, crying poverty is, is not going to work.
All right. Yesterday morning, we got into a conversation about the new government program to try and get more nurses um, rapidly brought on board in the uh, provincial health care system. International nurses, basically what it is. Um, and immediately it led to a lot of discussion with you, the audience, about not only that, but some of the other barriers that seem to exist for us as a province and producing more nurses and doctors through our post-secondary system. So today... Uh, very pleased to say that the Minister of Advanced Education, Dimitrios Nicolaitis, has graciously agreed to join us and talk about these issues, which is obviously very important to a lot of you. Minister, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being here today. Of course, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, let's start with the announcement that came out this week. As we all know, there's a real shortage of healthcare workers, including nurses. Now, the plan that you unveiled, this is focused on facilitating international nurses being brought on board in the provincial system, correct? How does it work? Yeah, that's right. So uh, I announced uh, the other day that um, uh, with Budget 2023, which is um, uh, going to be unveiled on, on February 28th, uh, you know, should that budget move ahead and be passed by the Legislative Assembly, that uh, we'll, uh, we'll be able to unlock $15 million in funding uh, in that budget uh, to support and assist internationally educated nurses. So a part of that, $7.8 million, is going to create a new uh, non-repayable uh, bursary specifically for internationally educated nurses. Uh, with that bursary, they would be eligible to receive as much as $30,000 over five years to help offset some of the costs of tuition, uh, bridging programs, living expenses, uh, and other costs. Um, in addition, we are also investing uh, $7.3 million to create 600 new seats at nurse, uh, for nurse bridging programs at uh, Mount Royal University, Bow Valley College, uh, and Norquest College. There have been uh, stories of, of long wait times to get into these bridging programs. When we made the announcement at Mount Royal University, we spoke with Uche, an internationally educated nurse from Nigeria, who said that she had to wait five years before she could get into the program to bring her credentials up to the Canadian equivalency. Uh, and I think we can all agree that that's a massive disservice. Sure. Um, and so we're really hopeful that we can this can help uh, get those folks into occupations that uh, they're really driving for. So just so we're all clear, when we're talking about the 600 new seats uh, at the post-secondary institutions, that's not to train new um, nurses in Alberta, new Alberta kids. This is the program that international nurses need to take in order to get accredited to work in Alberta, correct? Yeah, precisely. Gotcha. That's uh, the 600 seats for the uh, for the specifically for the bridging programs that uh, the uh, the regulating agencies usually require internationally educated nurses to participate in to make sure that they're Canadian equivalency. Gotcha. Okay. Now, and as you said, it's up to thirty thousand dollars, six thousand dollars a year for five years, with the understanding that each time you access a year of funding, six thousand dollars, you must stay in Alberta and work as a nurse for a year. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. We've attached a, a, a standard return of service uh, agreement. So for every $6,000 that a recipient receives, uh, they'll be required to uh, complete a year of nursing service uh, in the province of Alberta. And if they don't, I don't know if you're that far down the road, what happens? Do you go after them for the 6000 yeah, if they don't, as is a, a standard process with return of service agreements, um, if they decide to leave the province or, um, or or not practice in the occupation, then there would be an expectation for them to reser uh, return the, the funds that have been awarded to them. Uh, one, one question I had is five years. I mean, in terms of the timeline that it takes to, I mean, you can you can get a degree in nursing in five years. Why why is it eligible for up to five years? I you know I know a lot of the 
conversation we had yesterday said typically it takes 10 to 14 months, so roughly one year of education to complete that bridging program. Why have you extended the timeline out to five years? Yeah, you're right. The bridging programs usually take, like at Mount Royal University, as an example, it, it takes from about 10 months to 14 months for someone to go through the bridging program. Uh, we, we wanted to just provide some wide, uh, wide uh, latitude there. Um, you know, oftentimes other things can get in the way. Uh, people's studies can get interrupted. Um, they may have other challenges. So we wanted to make sure that they have that five-year window and uh, and they can receive that if it if it takes that amount of time which um you know it probably shouldn't but we just want to make sure that we have our bases covered that makes sense now when we got into this conversation yesterday and this happens every time we talk about this and i'm not sure if you have the answers at your fingertips but i'm um like i just got a text as you and i are speaking right now from a listener saying my daughter tried to get into nursing she has a 90 average couldn't get in not didn't meet the academic qualification. We got so many texts saying the same thing yesterday, so many saying, my son applied for med school, couldn't get in. Um, is there any, what you're talking about here with the nurses, I guess we would probably call a medium. It's not going to help us this weekend, but it will help us in the, you know, the medium term, getting more nurses on board. Has there been talk? Is there discussion? Is there any plans to increase the number of seats at U of A, U of C, those kinds of places where we're going to double the number of nurses we're producing in our province? Uh, absolutely. So you're right. You know, the, the support for the internationally educated nurses is, is more of a, of a medium term. Uh, you know, we can get someone turned around in about 10 months, uh, and get them, uh, get them in, uh, participating in our health workforce. Um, but you're right. And I, and I've heard a lot of those other, those comments from, from parents and from Albertans about some of the high entry requirements. Mm. So we've, we've already taken some steps to try to address that in last year's budget. We uh, we announced 171 million in new funding to our universities and colleges to create 10,000 additional spaces in high demand uh, occupations, and that included um, healthcare. We created uh, more seats in uh, healthcare aid programs, in paramedicine, and in nursing. And as a matter of fact, as a result of that investment. We uh, we were of course uh, forecasting to have some significant shortages in in uh, in healthcare staff by 2030, but with the investment and the expansion of seats, we are no longer projected to have shortages of uh, healthcare aides, and we've also uh, projected to cut the shortage of nurses in half with that investment. So uh, I'm hopeful with that investment that we made last year, we'll be able to create those additional spaces and and that'll uh, subsequently bring those admission uh, entry requirements down a little bit. In my mandate letter from from Premier Smith as well in November, um, she asked me to look at continuing that program. And so um, I'm hopeful in the, in the next few weeks, we might be able to get on a call again and talk a little bit more about other details that are in the budget. So that, that announcement, that funding to uh, increase it by 10,000, there's always a timeline. So when you're talking about 10,000, is that per year or over 10 years? I mean, give us the details on where that funding would go and how it would work. Yeah, absolutely. So again, that was that was announced last year, and it was 171 million over three years, 
And uh, the, uh, the, the projection that we have from our universities and colleges was that they would be able to create 10,000 additional spaces. That is over the three years. Um, a lot of them indicated that they would be ready to go and uh, create more spaces in those programs um, as early as this, this, past, um, this past September and the beginning of the fall academic year. So many of those spaces have already been created for other programs. It may take the universities and colleges a little while to, to ramp up, but that uh, we will see those those spaces all come online uh, over the course of the the three years. Uh, and and when I talk about the 171 million, just to break that down a little bit further, there was about uh, 30 million of that money that went specifically to healthcare related programs, and that uh, would create approximately 2,500 spaces in healthcare professions, including nursing, paramedicine, and and healthcare aides. Okay. Um, the other question I'm hoping you can answer for us, because it's the other one that comes up every time we have this conversation. And, I, you know, I've looked into it, and it seems like there's there's a cap of about 15%, but everybody says, well, there's too many seats for the international students because they pay so much money. The universities focus on them. We should be letting Alberta kids have more opportunity. What is are the rules, are the regulations, are the restrictions on how many foreign students can take up seats in med school, nursing school, that sorts of thing, or is that up to the uh, individual schools? No, there there aren't government regulations that that specify those details. It's up to the individual schools. Uh, but again, you know, as I just mentioned, we are moving forward with. What I'm being told from my officials in the Ministry of Advanced Education is the largest targeted expansion of seats in Alberta history, That those 10,000 seats that we mentioned. Um, and then those are for domestic domestic students, of course. And so that that is a, a significant expansion of seats. And that's, as, as we mentioned, a portion of that is in healthcare, but we're also adding more spaces in other in-demand programs, such as in aviation, in, in tech, uh, in construction, in business, and in other areas where uh, we, we see that demand. As we went through that process, you know, we asked the universities and colleges, where are the areas where you're turning away students? Because, of course, that's that's a problem. We don't want to be turning away qualified uh, Alberta students. And then they, of course, provided us more details and said, you know, here are the programs where we're turning away students. Here here are the uh, the ones where we can do with some greater capacity. And those are the ones that we funded to create more spaces. And when we talk about nursing, we're talking about RNs, LPNs, the, the, the whole envelope, correct? That's correct. Yeah, RNs, LPNs, uh, and again, as I mentioned, we we also funded last year uh, uh, para, uh, paramedicine uh, spaces, uh, healthcare aid spaces, and uh, as I mentioned in my mandate letter from Pr- uh, Premier Smith this uh, November, uh, she's asked me to continue that uh, incredibly successful program. So I'm, I'm hopeful we'll have some more to say on it on February 28th. Um, in terms of uh, what advanced education can do, you're looking at short term, you're looking at long term. There's not really a lot in terms of the immediate, right? I mean, it takes time to produce these people, and that's just the reality that we're in. Yeah, you know, I think when we when we talk about um, healthcare capacity and, and health workforce more broadly, it, it has to be a, and is a cross government uh, approach. And, and different de- government departments and ministries, of course, play different roles. Uh, from an advanced education standpoint, it's it's our uh, responsibility to ensure that uh, we are graduating enough and that we have enough spaces to be able to graduate uh, enough folks, not just 
for our healthcare uh, system, but for all aspects of our economy. Um, and, uh, and other ministries, including, of course, you know, the Ministry of Health and others are looking at some of those more immediate um, solutions that, that we can implement. Minister, as always, I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.